0: everyone and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest today is Stefanos Gerolanus, the author of Transparency in Post-War France, A Critical History of the Present. And the book was published by Stanford University Press in 2017. Hi there, Steph. Hi, Roxane. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today.
1: Thank you so much for doing this. I'm really excited to have a conversation about the book.
0: Could you get us started by telling our listeners a little bit more about yourself and what got you interested in working on France originally?
1: I grew up in Greece uh, and came to college in the United States. I mean, it, was, it wasn't it was too surprising to have two languages um, before coming to the U.S. and I had English and German or, you know, before going to college and I had English and German. Mm-hmm. And I started learning French and enjoying it much more both for literary qualities and for the philosophical text that at the time I was much more interested in. So, sort of gradually veered toward France and then went to grad school at Hopkins at the Humanities Center, where French thought was really very much alive and present for us, and uh, where I also worked with David Bell in, and others in, in the history department.
0: And your first book was on questions of anti-humanism.
1: Right. The first book more or less tried to cover the period 1925 through 1955, that is to say, until the moment when anti-humanism really hit in the French context, where, you know, let's say either with Le strauss triste uh, or with really the advent of a structuralist generation. And the idea was to say that most of these problems had already been very much present since the 1920s, 1930s. And that there were three kinds of problems. On the one hand, they were problems concerning atheism. On the other hand, to talk about this, uh, the concept of the human and how it ceased to be a foundation for thought, how it became something very much in doubt mm-hmm. or suspended from other concepts, and then uh, secular humanism and the perception of the failures of secular humanism in the post-war period, at least among philosophers in that case.
0: So how did you come to a fascination with transparency as a concept?
1: some of the story is totally prosaic i discovered when i was applying for jobs that uh half of the essays on my cv actually had transparency on the title <laughs> and so i ended up wondering what that was supposed to mean or why that was in any sense significant why i was uh, latching on to that and gradually came to realize that you know around 2008 or 2009 when i was finishing the other book "transparency." was very hot. It was very much supported by certainly both the Democrats and Republicans in the 2008 election. And Mm. then once elected, Obama in his very first memorandum to government agencies announced that transparency was a very good thing, that transparent government was good government and that his would be the most transparent government ever, which is something that David Cameron's um, also reported once he was uh, elected in, in England. So what, I found most peculiar was that instead most of the figures that I was studying looked at transparency as something really pitiful, uh, as a real problem, as as by no means a politically unproblematic issue, but on the contrary, as something that had to be put to the test. Most of the thinkers discussed in the book sort of en passant, or in passing, treat transparency as something that we all know what it means, and it doesn't mean a good thing. If you suggest that the self is transparent, then there's something wrong with you because you don't understand how the unconscious works or how social determination or social construction works. If you think that politics or government would ever be transparent, these people would, for the most part, try to say that you're not looking closely enough. Instead, for them, transparency was to be allied with a transparent society, meaning a totalitarian society in which there would be no privacy or concept of dignity or concept of autonomy or social difference and so that became clear bit by bit by bit it wasn't something that I really expected mm-hmm. but after seeing those first couple of essays uh, on the CV I started trying to look more closely at different domains where transparency might be an issue and or different texts at times in different domains and others
0: so Steph, this is a book focused on the post-war period in France and I guess if why transparency is my first question, then my second has to be, you know, why transparency in post-war France? What, what makes the notion of transparency and the pursuit of its history in the French context in particular so important? So I guess it's a question in two parts. And why the post-45 period?
1: Right. So the, part of this has to do with, the, with my first book, one of the conclusions of the first book was that there is something of a sea change between the nineteen twenties and the nineteen fifties. And this sea change is particularly important because what is given up are certain ideals that remain commonsensical or widely appreciated, but that are, you know, not necessarily convincing to philosophers or anthropologists or even political thinkers in the in the everyday World. So what would I use as an example of this? One would be a very basic ideas like progress, um, or like the truth that is to be found in scientific achievement. Those ideas were central to certainly the academic worldview in the 1920s, and they were part and parcel of a center-left humanism that was also being adopted both by the further left and the right in the 30s and then after the war. Now, once the post-war period comes in, first, you have the very particular character of the French Second World War. That is to say, the loss, the occupation, collaboration, the fantasy of a certain kind of liberation, and then the deep disappointment that hits by 1945-1946 uh, with the hopes to be associated with the liberation. So, Part of what I was most interested or invested in in this project was to see how ideals get set up in post-war France and in what ways people do not really have high expectations. You know, sure, the communists have high expectations, but in a certain sense, there's a measure of unreality to communist expectations after the early 1950s that only returned in the 1960s and more broadly. Mm -hmm. So why the post-war had very much to do with the thought that you know many of the same people who came out for De Gaulle in in 44 had come out for Pétain 40 um, that many of the same people had hoped for a certain measure of the new world but had also accepted or compromised if you will uh, in such a way that they would not necessarily want to discuss what these compromises were many others. In 1944-45, Sartre writes about this, uh, or let's say spoke about this on the radio in in 1944, conceived of the resistance as a world in the shadows that could not necessarily come out to the light without losing something essential about itself. And so suddenly, from my perspective, all these metaphors coalesced in a way that is particularly French, that does not coalesce anywhere else in Europe or in the U.S., In the post-war period, nobody really celebrates shadows in 1945, certainly not in Germany, for example, or in Britain. This isn't the imaginary that you end up with. In a way, what I started looking at was a coalescence, not so much of concepts as of visual figures, Mm. uh, a a coalescence of figures, of metaphors, of particular values. And that seemed to me to be the key shift between the pre-war period and the post-war, to come back to the other way of understanding your question. Yeah. In the pre-war period, you certainly had critics of transparency, figures who thought, like Bachelard, for example, that the key idea would be not uh, transparency but the obstacle. And then in the post-war period, these people have become much more mainstream. Mm-hmm. This has to do with phenomenology. It has to do with the politics of the Communist Party and of very many of the fellow travellers in the late 1940s, and it has to do with new attempts to think up scientific problems, whether these be uh, problems of norms or whether these be problems of structure, and what would eventually become structuralism. So I think that's the that's the key shift at multiple levels around the wartime period.
0: Would you say then, Steph, that transparency is a preoccupation across? Well, let's just start with you know European societies in the post-45 period and that it has a particular quality in France, or is it in France that transparency is a, a specific type of concern that it isn't in other places uh, following the Second World War?
1: Right, I would say the latter. I would say that transparency in France is a type of concern that's not quite present elsewhere. Mm. In Germany, for example, political openness and transparency are a very real goal. Right. It's an appeal in the federal republic as that you know, democracy involves openness, that this is no longer... Uh, Even if this is a conservative government, it has nothing to do with the Nazi period. And part of the idea is to say that everything had been happening to the benefit of one party or within behind closed doors. So democracy now in Germany, as in Britain, as in the U.S., gets associated with an open society. As the Cold War hardens, the argument for transparency is very explicit, but it is also very much attached to democratic governance. In the Eastern Bloc, by contrast, transparency is what is to be expected of, you know, a proletarian universe, of communism proper. So if it's not there yet, it will come. In France, by contrast, it's something very different. Mm. People don't assert transparency. They don't talk about what it is. For the most part, they talk about it in passing. And yet, except for, you know, strong Catholics and certain communists, people do not present transparency as a positive value. And so in that regard, you suddenly have a word that has very particular uses and a very particular value. Now, you could say that perhaps it's easier to tell a certain divergence between France and the rest of Europe if you just present this as a short essay. (laughs) But, right, um, (laughs) the, the twist is that Instead, you could talk about the meaning of a word, or if not the meaning, at least the value of a word, when you see it being replicated across so many different levels. Mm -hmm. So philosophers will use it, anthropologists will use it, psychologists and psychoanalysts will use it. And at the same time, you'll have government officials using it, or you'll have police tracts using it. And so what I was most excited about was not to do a history of philosophy, whereby, after all, you could say, you know, one term or other has a particular value in a philosophical system. Mm. But to talk about how this concept or word could be used far beyond an individual philosophical system, such that we could see it permeating very different kinds of texts. And once you've linked these all together, you suddenly have a very different account of what post-war French thought is like. Mm -hmm. And by thought here, we don't mean something high-end. We mean something that in some cases can be quote unquote, high end. Right. But in other cases, it would simply be, you know, pop psychology or discussions around particular films. So this, this was part of what I found much more interesting than one thing that would say transparency is used in this way in this country and in that way in that country. Right. I also don't necessarily think that that kind of conceptual history or history of ideas is particularly valuable. Let's say it doesn't have a crossover appeal as this thing I thought would have.
0: I just want to follow up on something you said. I guess it's a question about your object in this book, but also your method. Are you chasing transparency, the word, and its uses in France and in French across these multiple contexts, in philosophy, outside of philosophy, in all of these places? To what extent are you married to the word throughout the book? And how open is transparency in terms of a, a concept that you are chasing that takes other forms? And, I, and when I say forms, I mean down to the, the words that you're looking for in the text and uh, situations and sites that you're that you're pursuing in the book.
1: Right, right. No, so sometimes I'd be looking at the I'd be looking for the word itself
0: hmm.
1: and to see just how it's used. To give an example, I was very surprised to see that Foucault uses it in an extraordinarily technical sense. He knows exactly what it means, and it never appears in the text kind of by accident. Uh, others would use it in a far more Easygoing passion. So on the one hand, I was looking for the word, but I was also looking for the way in which this particular word would link up to other ones. Mm-hmm. So that the purpose here would be less to say here is the meaning of this particular word, than to say instead, let's look at a little spider web of all the other concepts that it's linked with, and how do people talk about it? So for example, there's a chapter about masks, um, or there's another chapter about social transparency in the black market, Mm -hmm. uh, a separate chapter that tries to say, how is it that utopia works? Or what is alienation? If alienation is now to be conceived in the post-war period as something that you can never really avoid or escape, at least until 68, Mm. and therefore a blip. How do these other words link backwards and forwards into the questioning that we have at hand? Now, I'm not going to pretend that this is a very exact way Of operating, you could always have an extra text on the side. You could always have another point of reference. But I do think that you can say that between, let's say, the center of the spider web and all the other little points where the threads of the spider web are tied, you can be looking at different concepts and different words and all these seem quite closely linked. So then you're not going to pretend that having talked about transparency and the words around it, you're telling a full story of France, Mm. in the post-war period, but that you can tell a story that does explain certain kinds of linkages, not necessarily causalities, but certain kinds of linkages that you would otherwise miss. For example, why is there a certain obsession against norms? I mean that in a good way, uh, after 1945 and then again after 1955 and especially Mm. in the later 60s. And how does that concern with norms link to this language of the other that is a very distinctly French language and that uh, becomes a key to philosophical and psychoanalytic and ethical thinking in the later 1950s, 1960s. In this regard, it's a little bit of a phantom, and what I liked was chasing down the phantom.
0: Well, and you're also looking for something, and the book begins this way and returns specifically to the Enlightenment and to the period of the French Revolution. You return to those... Moments and texts and figures, and then the authors, the post war authors and thinkers that you're pursuing in the book return as well. So, you know, apart from the question of how and to what extent transparency is a preoccupation in post war France and how that may or may not compare to other national contexts, that there is a very long history of the concept and the uses of the term and its related terms. Uh, in, right. in, in the French context. Could you say a little bit about that longer history and how, what role that plays in the book?
1: Um, yes, indeed. There are multiple histories in the longer run that would relate both to the concept of transparency and to many of the other concepts that I engage in directly in the book. One way to explain why I resisted setting this up through this history is that I think you, you end up front-loading a project so much, Mm -hmm. Uh, as though we can tell a linear story from, I don't know, Plato or Aristotle, who do engage the problem of diaphaneia all the way through the establishment of Transparencia in the Middle Ages, and then the various ethical, aesthetic, political concerns of the early modern period, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Um, Then we would go to Rousseau, you know, with whom the book really Begins actually not really with Rousseau but with treatments of Rousseau right. in the 1950s, but I just don't see the the great value of that argument. On the one hand, I thought it was important to talk about the fact that yes, there is a long-term you know vis- history of visual transparency or a, a Christian history of transparency, and so there are some short chapters called, you know, a kind of a particular short history or, you know, was transparency an optical problem a short history? Mm -hmm. But what is social transparency a short history? But it seems to me much more important to point out that these are merely pointers that would get cited in the period under discussion. To some degree, I almost constructed that backstory out of the 20th century and out of the period 1930 through 1990, which is let's say, the long bookends of the the project itself. Mm. I didn't think that there was a kind of truth to it that was already, you know, there and granted that I needed to cover first in order to get to the discussion. here.
0: The book is quite conceptually and methodologically complex stuff. And I'm wondering if before we get into that complexity, If you could give our listeners a broad sketch of the structure and organization of the chapters of the book, the thematics that the different parts explore, just a kind of rough overview of the project before we dig in. So the book is
1: is divided into five parts. The first one concerns the immediate post-war period, which has to do with the terms of transparency as a concept available to philosophers, philosophers of science, and anthropologists. Mm It's very much to do with the way in which the term can be used in relation to things like perception or reality, with the, the let's say, the obstacles that lie between myself and the world, between uh, an ability to understand the world, and which then has to do uh, with attempts to rethink what a machine is uh, and how human beings relate to to one another. Mm-hmm. Part two shifts to discuss matters of state and utopia in particular i'm interested in a series of connections between you know the state in inverted commas and society in inverted commas uh which would have to do with the police with the persistence of the black market in the early post-war period with figures like the gangster or the inadapte or maladapted adolescent which was the term that was used over and over uh, and then I'm concerned with questions of alienation and utopia mm. in this, this part. How is it that a Marxist language of the state coalesces in the mid-1950s, that is to say, after the heavy uh, Pesef, uh years? Part three is the key part of the book. This is the point in which the key major concepts that I want to consider or that I wanted to consider get played out, and it's a pair that concerns roughly the 1950s and the early 1960s. So here we have in play concepts of the norm, the normal and the same, uh, concepts of structuralism or the structural symbolic order, and yet in other ones, concepts of self and other, of face and mask. And part four is about radicalization. So this is the moment in which figures like Lévi-Strauss, Foucault, Derrida, Lacan, Leroy gouraud and so on become figures that rethink the entire story of modernity around the problem of transparency. And it's the moment when they also begin to postulate in the mid, to, mid 60s to 1967 they begin to postulate what the future will. Be like how it is that all these humanist conceptions and done and done, but then this entire schema gets overturned after may sixty eight It's not that it's simply abandoned, but it's suddenly that you know there's an agent for this promise of future transformation, and this agent is very much an agent that they have not anticipated. If they thought that there will be a sort of transhumanist transformation, which is not necessarily a good thing but uh, a deeply troubling one, suddenly now there is a real subject of politics. And so the last part, part five, is the period 68 to about 83, which first considers this agent of history, then shifts to what Claude Lefort, François Furet, Pierre rousseau and others call the myth of the self-transparency of society, developing a liberal way of thinking, which nonetheless jettisoned transparency altogether. And the book that ends around 1983, 1984, on the one hand with Jean-François Lyotard's The Postmodern Condition, and on the other hand with socialist uh, ministers and socialist theoreticians, if you prefer, who rejected the rejection of transparency and sought to find a new kind of transparency for their purposes.
0: There is a way in which the book pursues this concept, using a familiar turning point to begin with, 1945, then moving towards something like the massive upheavals of 1968, you know, a transition from one political regime or state system to another. To what extent do you see the book as an intervention or not in how we think about the long arc of the post-war period, the the familiar milestones and what we might describe as the more kind of textbook narrative of the period 45 to 89, let's say, Uh, to what extent is it jostled, challenged, interrogated by this book? And to what extent does it remain intact?
1: Yes, there is a certain respect for 45, 68 and perhaps if you want 89, though, that actually comes a little bit after. 83 is really the, mm-hmm. the key thing uh, for the project. But the, the weighing, I think, is different. It's to suggest that there's a stabilization in the 50s, a, a conceptual radicalization that takes place really in 65 through 67, and that then 68 is in some respects a very serious return to ideas that existed already before and that could now be redeployed or replayed in a new key through the student movement or through the the, the general strike and the imaginary around the general strike of May. Mm-hmm. Then, once we hit the 1970s, again there's a certain weird conceptual co- coagulation, let's say, that takes place, or a kind of sedimentation that takes place, that then eventually collapses in the early 1980s.
0: I guess part of the motivation for the question for me is how you see the book as making an intervention into broader histories of this period that make arguments about contextual shifts, demographic change, the Cold War, the emergence of consumer culture, decolonization, whether you see the book as challenging, reinforcing, connecting to those types of histories that would emphasize Political, economic shifts, you know, social change, those kinds of things. Uh, how you see the book's arguments and the pursuit of transparency connecting with those types of histories that are out there of the post-war period in France?
1: There are different ways, let's say, of looking at this period. One can establish the post-war period on the basis, let's say, of a consumer culture or decolonization premise scenario. But what happens that is much more interesting has to do with the way political languages are deployed. From my perspective, the question that takes priority is why are certain languages resorted to and under what circumstances? Mm-hmm. My goal is both much smaller, let's put it like that. It's much smaller than to say something about the the key major social transformations of the post-war period. But it is also much trickier, in that I should like to know why a certain kind of imaginary is what takes over, why certain kinds of metaphors become much more important, why other ones look really flat, and why would people resort to these ones rather than those ones when they make a certain particular argument at a certain moment. So that is viewed from a social perspective far less significant, which is why the book avoids a language of context. But it is, if you were concerned with questions of political or philosophical or psychiatric language or the way in which we phrase our ideals, to put it in a, in a blunt manner, from that perspective, that seems to me just as significant.
0: I want to step back for a second, Steph, and kind of come back to these issues of method, how you made choices with respect to terms and phrases that you used to describe the project really from the outset. One is this notion of you know, pursuing entangled micro-histories. The other is the idea of a web as a model for conceptual history. And then the third is this idea of uh, the book as a a critical history of the present.
1: Right. So I think I need to say the negative part of this argument first. Sure. And then to get to that. So let's say I wasn't so interested in the product of the thought of particular people. This isn't a kind of construct or a full-on image that comes out of the great minds of A, B, or C person. Mm -hmm. In this regard, I had very little interest in what a particular intellectual had as a background story or what institution they came from or how fit into a particular context. I was interested in the fact that the term appeared in their thinking and was very evidently linked to other terms uh, as they articulated their argument. And I didn't think that that could be biographically explained, and I didn't think that that could be explained to contextualism either. That's one side. The other side is that I couldn't quite see how a cultural history would give a similar or a useful explanation. There is really no sense of culture here. That would be just somehow um, a kind of totalizing fantasy in this project. So what this did was it made unavailable a considerable number of existing and really you know, in many ways, remarkable methodologies that are particularly useful for many of our colleagues. You know, as I was building this up, let's say, in these 22 chapters, what I was seeing instead was just the ways in which a set of terms that was changing a little by little uh, or seemed to be really the focus of what I should be talking about. Then the question is, how do you talk about that? One way to talk about it is you can call it a microhistory. After all, Microhistories are usually associated with individuals, but I don't see a reason why we couldn't say the same thing to be happening around the concept. The second was, yes, this web metaphor. The web metaphor came in part because, indeed, there were different concepts that transparency was linked to at different parts of the project. So, starting out, it was to be associated, on my mind, it was to be associated with perception, It was to be associated with consciousness and how the world is not transparent to consciousness. And then by the time that I'd reached the the late 1960s, it was a lot more about modernity, about whether something comes after modernity, about cybernetics. It was about the question of what the present time is. And in the middle, all these other concepts had come into this picture, and it was this complete chaos for a while in which I think, wait, am I talking about the self here? Or am I talking about the epistemological problem that the world is really quite, is not something that we're going to end up capturing? So on the one hand, I thought, let's just map this out and look at how transparency is tied to particular problems at each point in time. And so what this did was produce this webbing. Uh, And in that regard, it wasn't very much a metaphor. It was very much a, a kind of, you just make a, you take a huge sheet and you just draw direct connections back and forth and then you fill those connections with, certain kinds of understandings of value or understandings of what the content of that connection is supposed to be. And so here you say transparency progress. There you say transparency computers. And the meanwhile, you can say selfhood, norms, others, da, 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 So as I did that, I eventually started realizing how I could break up the story both into sections and into the broader cuts, let's say. Um, early on in the introduction, they say that there are basically four different spheres Uh, in which transparency plays in. One is a political sphere, transparent society is totalitarian society. One is a conception of selfhood, look into depth and don't look into the idea that the self Mm -hmm. is evident. Uh, One has to do with my relation to someone else. And the fourth one has to do with epistemology. And so as these divisions came up, I started feeling rather more comfortable about telling this story. I thought, if I can tell you not what transparency is, but at each stage what transparency relates to, then we can have something to talk about. Tied to all these other concepts, we do get a story that's highly particular to France, that's highly particular to the way that political and philosophical and other ideals developed and transformed in post war France. And we do get a story that isn't simply about philosophers. That was the other thing that I really wanted to avoid. Mm-hmm there's a kind of fetishization of philosophers in intellectual history and especially in French intellectual history. Mm -hmm. And that scenario, I thought, yes, there's a reason why some of these figures are key and significant and particularly visible, but that has a lot to do with the weird status of the intellectual, that has a lot to do with a particular domain or field of philosophy, that has a lot to do also with the way that these figures have resisted only contextualization but ties to non-philosophical domains Mm. so what if I look at the words that they use some of which they use very consciously and others they seem to use unconsciously suddenly it's not really about philosophy anymore is it it is about a moment in which a philosopher uses the word transparency in perhaps a more technical way than you and I would use it And this brings us a little bit to the critical history of the present, so I can close on that bit. In part because of the Obama moment, and by the time that the book was finished, we were in a very different moment, in which, of course, Trump can any anytime tweet that he is the most transparent, and his tax record aside, that's precisely the appeal of a, of a tweeting mechanism. <laughs> it seems to be particularly interesting that this is a deeply political problem and a contrast that needs to be accentuated rather than one that can be simply ignored. So then this becomes a really fun problem, right? Mm-hmm. Can we think about the terms and the you know, intellectual arsenal, let's say, that comes from this period against precisely what we see in our moment? And I think that, yes, there is a lot that happens from the understanding of information, from the understanding of privacy, from the understanding of one's maskedness or one's face, from what happens about... An understanding of alienation of normativity of otherness that does seem to have a much more you know a much tighter story in France than it has elsewhere mm-hmm. uh the social sciences in Britain, Germany, and the u s only with some delay come to be as critical and as useful as they do in the French context, and really very much of the work done here is less on philosophy than it is on the social or so-called human sciences. The way that these can offer us tools and political possibilities in this.
0: So, how do you think about the book as either a kind of confirmation of tensions between the disciplines or something that emerged for me reading it, really seeing some common ground between certain types of disciplinary uh, conversations that I might not have otherwise noticed without a focus on transparency?
1: That's quite true. I do think that there are other spheres as well. For example, literary theory mm-hmm. and literary history. Questions of medicine and norms and public health come in. Uh, the norms chapter is my personal favorite chapter, mm. because the suggestion there is that this abandonment of the normal happens in anthropology and sociology with Leroy Gouraud, in medicine with, and philosophy with uh, Conguilhem, and then with Lacroix psychiatry, but that these are really quite parallel developments by people who, for the most part, hated one another, and who had very little truck with each other's movements. So there, again, this was to suggest that across these schemas, we get crossover concepts that can be deployed or utilized similarly in different disciplines and perhaps to similar effects.
0: I'm curious, Steph, about the status of the, the visual in the book, not just in terms of, you know, what you begin the book with, which is kind of the differentiation between this project as a project, and transparency as a concept that is entirely caught up in in visuality, but also everything from you know the moments when you speak about filmmaking to the other kind of visual sites that aren't explored in the book to your use of illustrations. And I just wonder about if you could say a little bit about your thinking and the relationship of the project to to histories of the visual.
1: So I think that I would probably be, end up being a disappointment in this. <laughs> Part of the idea here, and this wasn't simply a strategic contrast with Martin Jay's great book, Downcast Eyes. Mm-hmm. Part of the idea here was that there really, the transparency isn't really a visual problem. When we talk about transparency, we talk about something being transparent in the sense of glass, but we don't necessarily talk about transparencies, for example, to put it flatly. And when we've talked about something being transparent like glass, We've made certain conceptual claims and certain epistemological claims about visibility. I can see through glass. Now, the visual component of the project involves multiple things. First is a kind of only partially given history of cinema. Mm -hmm. This would begin with a cover uh, from Godard's Contempt, and then it would play into the book from games around, little games around year zero. Through to the the the, the chronicle of a summer and earlier on figures from ethnographic film uh, and onward to the the debate around society of the spectacle mm-hmm. uh, which makes only marginal appearance later on there were other figures who come in but only barely, barely or Robert Verson would be an example now why is this significant to bring in I think that there is something about reintegrating the history of cinema, and especially the history of claims to cinematic truth into the project of the book itself. That's what I on. Mm-hmm. on the other, however, I just didn't have very much that seemed to be the visual reference for transparency. You know, so every time that I'd have a conversation, the conversation would go into, well, are transparency is important as I was building this, or are x-rays important? Well, x-ray story is from the 1900s, but it doesn't quite seem to fit very much here. Mm-hmm. Transparency and glass don't really seem to be a key issue, and we already have a very good book about the post-1789 mm-hmm. period by Teresa Levitt called The Shadow of Transparency, which has to do with optics in the early 19th century. That, I think, had a much more serious reality to it around the optical issue. So, in a way, if I'm dancing around your question, I'm doing so in part because I don't want to give it the sense that this was a that this is somehow a self-given domain. I don't necessarily believe that there is something like a history of vision in the post-war period, or that this is to be presented as a single, overarching, closed subject.
0: Throughout the project, stuff from the kind of opening statements that you've made in this conversation and that you make in the book regarding you know, the, op- the timing of your writing of this this book and the Obama administration to the sort of turn towards transparency again in the period uh, following 1968, the theme and the question of the state really runs throughout, you know, multiple if not all of these chapters. And so I guess I want to ask, what is the intervention that you see the book making in terms of our understanding of French notions of state apparatuses, suspicion versus um, you know, hopeful or utopian understandings of the possibilities of the role of the state? Is there a, a narrative thread here or an arc? Is it multiple competing notions of the state throughout the whole period covered by the book? Yes. do we get somewhere with respect to the state by the end of this period uh, in relationship to the concept of transparency? Most
1: of this is about perceptions of a state or ways in which the state appears to be normal or natural or naturalized in particular forms of argument. So early on in the project, the question is in chapter after chapter, what is this relationship between state and society as it is imagined and hypothesized over and over and over by different kinds of agents, whether these agents be resistance figures whether they be criminologists, whether they be filmmakers or psychiatrists, this idea that the state has a particular relation either to the child, the adolescent, or the quote-unquote abnormal is a very significant or key part. Mm -hmm. There are interesting little inflections that I learned all through the, the story. First of all, this complete disbelief, let's say, that the state can be made transparent uh, that the state would ever be anything other than corrupt, that it would ever be anything other than, you know, a kind of closed-off mechanism that has agency over society. We often talk about corruption in France or about the regime in the post-war period, but the sense that the state is perceived as being distant, overarching, uh always potentially authoritarian, and always opaque, is something that we see emerge time and time again. When is it that the state appears related to transparency? One version is in Foucault's Panopticon. The second moment where it appears is in Sartre's famous text introducing Fanod's Wretched of the Earth, where he says, the sun of torture has risen to its zenith in the sky and it's radiating across the whole country. And that is about state torture. That particular set of perceptions differs, of course, between different agents, but it does need to be uh, foregrounded because precisely it isn't something that you would get through an account either of what the story of the state would be or an account that would describe theories of the state in French thought. The former is, of course, the subject of, uh, for example, my colleague Eric Chaplin's wonderful book on France's mm-hmm. long reconstruction that just came out. The latter is the subject of a dissertation by Danilo Schultz, uh, Antique L'Ezotitude. So this is not to diss either of them. It's to suggest that when you get a more fragmented, conceptually-oriented perspective, suddenly you see all these very jarring, different, you know, ricocheting ideas of how the state relates to everyday life or to, quote-unquote, society.
0: How much in this project, Steph, does generation matter?
1: The funny thing about generations is that the key figures toward the end of the book are already, let's say, in their 40s, if not in their 50s. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the book ends, these are not necessarily, you know, young guns. And there are other people who will follow up. There certainly is something like a structuralist generation in this project. I think it's more heuristic from my perspective, than actually intentional. But I don't think I ever paid very much attention to generations or thought that meaning is constructed generationally, even if institutions themselves really are. Mm-hmm. So that may actually explain very much of the logic behind prioritizing 67 and separating it out of 68.
0: So the book really ends, stuff in this period of, I guess, the early mid-80s. Um, and I'm wondering uh, two things. One is, where are we by the time we get to, to the end of this project? But also, if you have thoughts on the period that follows, you know, the decades that follow and what some of the issues and places that you, I'm sure, have tracked and noticed and thought about in that period that follows the mid-80s, what the rule of transparency is uh, in the French context
1: Right. So one thing is that, of course, uh, I say in the book, and I, I think I said at some point before that, you know, in the mid-1980s, there's a sudden shift uh, to give a little bit more meat to this, which is that whereas until that point, transparency has been generally decried, including by figures of the left who were either Maoist or autogestion thinkers in the 1970s, and now have become ministers, like Rokach, for example. Mm-hmm. Now, whereas in the 70s they described transparency as, quote-unquote, a bad thing, then in the 1980s, once the austerity program comes in, they don't really have an ideological foundation, and now computing the stabilization of the welfare state and a certain kind of governmental transparency take off. That's the promise of a new socialism that is similar in some respects to new labor, though, of course, not nearly as pointed and as center-right as New Labour would end up. But it is interesting to see that shift. Now, what happens with philosophers uh, of the variety like Lyotard or Derrida, who appear late in the text, is that they do continue with critiques of transparency all the way into the 90s. And the idea is that they are aware of it as a catchword they want to oppose. On the other hand, however, we do have rather more interesting movements. Uh, someone like Pierre Rosanvallon, who appears late in the book because of his program uh, or his his book on uh, Le capitalisme utopique, the utopian capitalism. In the first version of the book in 1979, he gives uh, a first opening preface in which he talks about transparency as a deep ideological problem, particular to communism and totalitarianism. Mm -hmm. In 1999, he reissues the book with a totally different preface. And so from my perspective, that kind of thing is interesting evidence, Mm -hmm. obviously not on its own, but with other things. More recently, transparency in the French context has come to resemble uh, the situation elsewhere in Europe and the US. That is to say, Sarkozy was probably the first president to make a very open presentation of himself as, you know, someone who would would play his private life out relatively publicly. Mm. Then we had the président normal, and now we have Macron, who both celebrated a certain kind of transparency and was decried for that. As a matter of fact, the day that the, that I received the first copies of the book, Regis de gave an interview in which he made fun of Macron as uh, someone pretending to be transparent and Debray continued to say that for him, the only person who had ever been transparent was Gossette in, in <laughs> Belizei. So I, I don't care the least bit about Debray in the Sarah, but it's to say that that is an interesting mm-hmm. construction of contrast to me from my, from my perspective. So it's not that this ideal has been completely abandoned, mm-hmm. but it is that there was something, something I would hesitate to call simply neoliberal, that happened with transparency, including in France, In the two thousands. There was something to do with information. Some of it might be explained by neoliberalism. Some of it might be explained by a certain kind of need to to control governmental access to an unbridled new world of information, to Mm -hmm. put it that way. And so this isn't to suggest that things radically changed, but it's to suggest that there was more negotiation taking place and that at times the pendulum swings in a different in a different direction. In the last couple of years, if we've had this delegitimation of the fantasy of transparency under the you know from the obama era we've also i mean this has happened in part politically there's also been a kind of intellectual doubt mm. that's come up stanley fish just had an article in the new york times recalling other articles including by lawrence Lessig, that had very much to do with, you know, why is transparency supposed to be such a good thing? Mm-hmm. That's one side. There was the entire story around governmental treatments and whistleblowers. Mm-hmm. And then there was the rather spectacular moment where in an attempt to torpedo the Mueller investigation, Republicans in Congress released this FBI memo. And then Paul Ryan went on the floor of the House and said something like, transparency. Can now reign supreme. Mm. Now, this is a weird set of decisions. My point is not to move to the American context. Mm. It's to say that transparency has kind of stopped meaning one thing and people try to use it, but it's not very evident what's going on Mm -hmm. with it as we're living through it now. But back in the 80s, I think this is what happened in the French context as well. That, That you suddenly have this kind of, you know, a kind of falling apart of an imaginary that had been pretty much unidirectional, where the meaning had been clear and the value of the term had been clear.
0: I guess I'm wondering, too, thinking about the last few decades in the French context, I found myself, after reading the book, wondering about the, the post the, <laughs> imagining postscripts to do with or taking up notions of secularism, security, yes. a whole broad... Set of questions around the transparency of, or and the revelations around the French past, um, returning to the period of not just the Second World War, but the, the French Algerian War and other stories of decolonization. Yeah, so I, I found, after reading the book, I found myself thinking about places where, in the French context in particular, certain types of concerns. I mean, I guess in the, in the Rousseau model, we're talking about a mirror or something and a broken right. mirror. So we're back to the visual. But, but there does seem to be something about the moment when things turn at the end of your book and what I would understand to be a set of decades in which there is a, a move towards the consideration and, and a kind of fetish of revelation in the French context Yes. Um, that I find intriguing. And I just wondered if you had any thoughts about that.
1: I mean, you said before both laicite and security, and I think, Mm -hmm. you know, notice that histories of laicite or secularism have always doubled the term. So my auntie Fernando talks about secularism, the veil Islam, as does Joan Scott, of course, Mm -hmm. and now more recently in sex and secularism. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that in that case, one might be operating with two or three concepts again. It's not a simple story to be told of its own, so to speak. And it's, you know, because it is both too visible, too much uh, at stake, something that's that's very front and center. And I don't know that one can do that, can do the type of work that I did with a concept like that. Security is a much trickier concept, right? Mm-hmm. We don't immediately know where the story of security would begin and would end. Or we don't. It's not like we know it likes there, but we would have a certain set of, you know, immediate priorities. Mm-hmm my sense is that that would be an immediately more promising subject because we wouldn't quite know where to go in this or what would be the concepts that would be linked to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's, again, not to say, you know, the story of Laicite has been done or has not been done or this or that. It's to say that I find the, you know, overarching single-term story to be slightly unbearable unless it's, No, because, you know, so for example, it's always been the story about the early modern period is the story of the states. It's the story of freedom. It's the story, you know, you get yeah. these particular setups, either in Cambridge School historiography or elsewhere. That's great, but that is about a major concept whose story is being played out constantly. Mm-hmm. What happens with the things that will determine answers or will kind of haunt answers from behind in this I think that very much work, including my auntie's, including Joan Scott's, including Todd Shepard's project, for example, Todd Shepard's would be actually an exemplary case of this, where the story and the timeline is quite different uh, than mine, but where the priorities would again be something about sexuality and the Arab man, and how do you produce this scenario, this image that becomes overarching or overpowering. That kind of thing, I think, is quite similar, in a way, to, to what I had in mind here. <laughs> and yes, I don't think transparency can tell the story. I think others could do that much, much better. Yeah.
0: Okay, so I just have one last question for you, Steph, which is, what are you working on now?
1: So I, I finished another book, which was on uh, World War I and conceptions of the body in physiology, neurology, and related sciences before and after World War I. That's a book that I wrote with the medical anthropologist, Tom Myers. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, but I'm spending this summer working a bit more on this project on Napoleon and the Civil Code that I've been trying to develop, which is very much about the way in which Napoleon was, let's say, written into the code, imagined together with the code, not only by himself, but by and the others involved in writing it, by the Conseil d'Etat debating its terms, mm. and by what eventually became this weird association of the Code Napoléon. I sort of came to it by accident. Uh, I've said that I have a kind of fantasy, bigger project that has to do with the figure of the new human or the gener- regeneration of human nature as an aesthetic yeah. and political ideal in the French Revolution and later. And I was wondering, so what is the bourgeois man? you know, with what would be associated. And eventually, gradually, this idea that the code was particularly significant and that there was too little literature around it was something I wanted to, to try out. But it sort of happened also by accident and by linking, again, knowledge to aesthetics, to politics, to minor little concepts and expressions.
0: That all sounds uh, very exciting. Uh, Steph, I want to thank you so much for speaking with me and for writing the book.
1: Thank you so much for interviewing me. It's such great detail and length for this.
0: You've been listening to New Books in French Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network.